go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you again asking for your blessings upon us, your people, during this time that we have gathered together to worship you in song, to worship you in prayer, to worship you in the preaching and the hearing of the preaching of your word, or to, to give glory and honor to you because you are righteous, you are glorious, and you deserve all praise and glory from your people. We're here to offer that to you. But we ask for your help during this time. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit as he comes to guide us through your scriptures, as he comes to guide me in the words that I will say here. We pray that his, his visit upon us is powerful during this time, that souls are changed, that need to be changed, that those who are in Christ continue to abide in Christ, that those who are in Christ show forth good fruit that we are to read about right now because we we recognize that we see we receive any and all of our nourishment from him. Nothing is of our own, but at the same time, if we are receiving nourishment from him, our true vine, then we will produce the fruit of good works, Lord. I pray that you show us these things, show us who we are and who you are and how much we need you. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Tonight we are going to finish up with the final of the seven sermon series examining Jesus's I am statements from the book of John. So this is the last one. After making the case, Jesus has made the case just to remind you that he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. He is now going to conclude his seven I am's by stating, I am the vine, or I am the true vine. So he is the vine, and we who abide in him are the branches. We're going to read the text together in just a moment. But before we get to the text for tonight, I told you I was going to do this, so I told you I was going to repeat myself during each of the sermons that I preached during this series, and that I'm going to remind you of Jesus' discourse with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, where Jesus makes another I am statement that's not officially counted as one of the seven I am statements. You'll remember in that exchange in John chapter 8, in verse 58, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they took up stones to throw at him and to kill him. Why did they do this? Remind you again, because with those simple words, Jesus is claiming to be God. Okay? Jesus is claiming to be God. Also, again, like I said last time, Jesus makes another I am statement to the same author of the Gospel of John in a different context. In Revelation 1, verse 8, John reports that the Lord God says to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. So in that verse, it's a bit obscure whether Jesus himself is speaking to John or if John is seeing a vision of God the Father speaking in that instance. But again, in the book of Revelation in 21.6, it also isn't clear in this one either who, which person of the Trinity is speaking from the, great, from the great white throne when he says, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But it is clear who is speaking to John at the very end of the book of Revelation, when Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me 
to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is connecting himself to God, claiming to be God, because he's hearkening back to those other verses where it's clear that God is speaking in Revelation. He's the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, the totality, the sum, and the substance of the scriptures. He's the first and the last. So in other words, Jesus is God. So at the, at the risk of repeating myself for the third time now, why am I saying all this? Because I want you to remember that Jesus' I am statements have to be viewed in, the light, in light of the fact that he is fully God. That's important to remember, especially in this season right now, whenever we, we uh, fathom the incarnation, whenever he who is truly God can also assume humanity and become fully man also. But the importance of the I am statements is that Jesus is speaking to those, and those people can see, because he's right there in front of them, he, they can see that he's truly man. But he's telling them that he is truly God also. So all of his I am statements, remember, have some sort of mediatorial aspects to them. In essence, they're all saying the same thing with just different emphases here and there. Jesus is saying the same thing in all of them. He's saying that you cannot get to God in any other way than going through me. You can try all that you might, but I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. We cannot come into God's presence without Jesus bringing us there. We have to have the God-man. That is why we have to remember that Jesus is not just some man with some good teaching, but he is a very God of very God. Without that, we are left completely hopeless. But we're not hopeless. We're not hopeless because Jesus came. Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He paid the death that we couldn't pay and was resurrected so that we can have life and have it abundantly. And he is here to provide our nourishment, and he is here to provide our joy. Which brings us to our text tonight, which is in John chapter 15. <coughs> John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus speaking and says, I am the true vine, and my father's the, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so as God's providence would have it, out of the seven I Am sermons, 
or the seven I am statements, I just happened to get the three where Jesus is making some sort of agricultural or nutritional metaphor. If you remember back, I got, I am the bread of life and I am the good shepherd. And now I get, I'm the true vine. The other four really don't have that kind of nutritional, agricultural metaphor aspect to them. The others are light of the world, the door, resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. But the three that I have have this nutritional, agricultural aspect to it, just in God's providence. I, got, I, I happen to have those. And so, uh, just to tell you guys, I don't really know a whole lot about making bread, Ashley knows a little bit about it, but I don't know anything about making bread, or I don't know anything about growing the things that are used to make bread. And I've never owned any sheep, uh, nor have I owned any type of livestock, actually, so I haven't, don't really know a whole lot about that area, and I haven't interacted with too many shepherds, or really any at all. So I don't know about making bread or shepherding that much, but I do know a lot about watermelons. So uh, I could probably rattle off about a dozen different watermelon cultivars right now, if you ask me to. I grew up around a lot of watermelons. My grandfather had massive fields of watermelons, over hundreds of acres sometimes, and he'd grow them every summer. And the men of the family would go work these fields of watermelons. Growing up, my grandfather would pay me $5 a day, and he'd buy me lunch to work from sunup to sundown. I thought it was a lot of money for that. But in retrospect, it probably wasn't. Um, we'd load watermelons into, onto 18-wheelers. They'd, they'd pull in, we'd load them, and another one would pull in, and we'd load that. And then after my grandfather died, my dad took growing watermelons up as kind of a summer hobby, although the scale was going to be drastically reduced. It would be about five acres or so instead of hundreds. And the workforce was also drastically reduced. Instead of dozens of people working these watermelon fields, it would just be me, my dad, and my brother. And so I've interacted with a lot of watermelons, so I know them pretty well. And one thing that I do know about watermelons is that if you want nice, healthy, sweet fruit, you have to have good vines on watermelons. Watermelons have delicate vines most of the time, um, like we're, we're also some delicate vines. But uh, if you want good, sweet watermelons, you've got to have good vines for them. And the Bible, the Bible speaks about vines quite a bit also, um, or in a few instances, it talks about the fruit of those vines in a very positive way. So the Bible speaks about vines in a positive way very often, and the fruit of those vines. For instance, in Ecclesiastes 10, it says, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life. Or in Psalm 104, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth fruit from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. Or in Judges chapter 9, in a parable, it says, But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men, and go hold sway over the trees? And then, of course, uh, ultimately is the representation of Jesus' blood in the Lord's Supper, as he says in Luke 22. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then likewise, after the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So you see the theme of the vine or the fruit of the vine or the vineyard is well represented in Scripture. We see it kind of all over this place, especially in the Old Testament in these specific instances of speaking about the vines or vineyards or the fruit of the vine. Well, this is because as a Mediterranean nation, Israel was flush with vineyards. There's vineyards everywhere. 
Everyone in that culture knew how to cultivate grapes. Vineyards were, and still are, a real major part of society in pretty much all Mediterranean nations. So you see these in all the Mediterranean nations, a lot of vineyards. And so all the people there and all the people of Jesus' time would know how valuable good fruit is and how useless bad fruit is. And so furthermore, the people that Jesus is specifically talking to here, they're hearing Jesus proclaim here that he is the true vine. They are going to know some other Old Testament scriptures about what the prophets said about what Israel had become. So Israel was a vine that was transplanted from Egypt into the promised land by God. And as such, Israel was supposed to produce the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of justice that delights God. Well, let's see if they do that. A couple of places. First in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, this is what it says. If I can get there. Psalm 80, in verses 8 through 16, it says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that moves in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. And so this, this lament here, the psalm of Asaph, why is this psalm lamenting the destruction of the vine that Israel was planted. So Israel plant, plucked from Egypt, planted in the promised land, but something has gone wrong that leads Asaph to lament what has gone wrong in Israel. So what had went wrong? Well, you know the answer to that. Israel had a stiff neck the whole time they were there pretty much in the promised land. Israel was hard-hearted. They'd become calloused, and they were not a true vine like God had planted her to be. Also, in Hosea 10... Verse 1, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. That's not in a good way, Hosea is speaking here. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And as his country improved, he improved his pillars. So that's an indictment against Israel for not being a true vine. Also in Jeremiah 2.21, it says, Yet I planted you as a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? That was also an indictment against Israel. And then especially damning is Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it, cleared of its stones, and planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed a vine vat in it, a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
when I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you, what will I do to my vineyard? I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That's a bigger indictment. God makes it clear what he's going to do to Israel. And then Ezekiel later on after Isaiah comes in and rebukes Jerusalem for how useless of a vine it has become. So in Ezekiel 15... In Ezekiel 15, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything. The people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it. Behold, it's given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it's charred can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them, though they escape from the fire. The fire shall consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord when I have set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. These are all tough to read, especially if you're, you're in Israel, you're of the people of Israel. God's people had rejected him. They'd become hard-hearted and stiff-necked and callous, and they were not being the true vine that God had planted them in the promised land to be. So God tells them he's going to pluck them up. He's going to throw them into the fire. <laughs> but even... Even though, even that, even given all that, given all the wrath that we have just read, there's also prophecies of hope in the the Old Testament about a vine that is coming. So Isaiah's already, I mean Hosea has already called Israel a luxuriant vine, but the more that his fruit increased, the more altars he built, and the more his country improved, he improved his pillars. So Hosea's already said that, condemning Israel, but then later on, Hosea has a prophecy of hope. In Hosea 14, 7, speaking about Israel, he says, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So you got a prophecy of hope in Hosea here. It's pointing towards something of the restoration of Israel. As Jesus is coming in the church. And then you also have the wonderful promise of Isaiah 27. So back over in Isaiah, and we'll quit doing Bible drill for a time after that. But back in Isaiah 27, this is the promise of hope that's there in verses 1 through 6. It says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that's in the sea. In that day a pleasant vineyard... Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Sounds like a vine dresser, right? Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath that I would have 
Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So this is the promise that's really being made here. This is the promise that God is speaking through Isaiah. Then it says, Israel, even though you are wild grapes, even though you have not been the true vine that you're, you were supposed to be, I'm bringing one that's going to bring you hope. That's going to bring the whole world hope. And you're going to go out and you're going to go fill the whole world with your fruit. So the hope is always here in God. This is kind of an eschatological portion of Scripture right here because it kind of harkens to even the things that John says in, in Revelation about Leviathan and slaying the dragon that's in the sea. In that day, in the last days, when Jesus is here, God is going to be the vine dresser. He's going to give us a real true vine. And all of those that are in that vine are going to bring forth fruit. And so, remember... All of the people that Jesus is talking to know their Old Testament well. They're good Jews. They're good Israelites. So they're going to know their Old Testament well. They're probably going to recognize that Jesus is talking about them when he's talking about how he's the true vine. He has to come because they haven't been the true vine. And so knowing all this is a background, Jesus swoops in at the very heart of his farewell discourse, which is what Jesus is speaking about here in John 15. That's right in the middle of his, his farewell discourse. And Jesus swoops in and he gives those who refused to see who he really was another reason to try and stone him. Because he's coming in and he's saying, I'm fulfilling what you could not fulfill and what your fathers could not fulfill. Jesus fulfills what Israel could not do because he is the true vine. And Jesus opens up his I am statement, the seventh one, this metaphor with that, with that fact. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. It really kind of reminds you of Isaiah 27 that we just, ran, we just read. And then he reinforces it with that next statement. Like I said, he, he is the vine, father is the vine dresser. Back-to-back statements, pointing back to both the prophecies of Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. God's the vine dresser. But Israel's committed to idolatry and bloodshed. That was Isaiah 5. And Jesus then, he elaborates this point further in verse 2. The father is the vine dresser. And the father is the vine dresser does things to ensure the most production of the best fruit from the vine. The first thing that he does is that he removes the unfruitful branches. And these, as Jesus is going to say a few verses later down in verse 6, are going to be thrown into the fire. And this is hearkening back to what we read in Ezekiel 15. The useless branches are just thrown into the fire. They're not useful for anything. They're almost not even useful for the fire. You can't even build a small peg out of a useless piece of a vine. So they're just going to toss them into the fire. And Jesus says the same thing here. The unfruitful branches will be burned. And then the second thing that the, vine, the divine vine dresser does to ensure the most production of the best fruit is that for the branches that are producing fruit, God prunes them so that they produce even more fruit. So then what does this fruit look like? 
Well, in the beginning of the life of the believer, it looks like what John the Baptist announced when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the first fruit, repentance. And from then on, those that abide in union with Christ get pruned by the Father in order to increase the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the things that Paul lists in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. So you get the fruit of repentance, and then abiding gets you the fruit of the Spirit, that you're going to display these good works of fruit in your life. So if you are in Christ, God is continually pruning you so that you increase this fruit. He's pruning you through his divine providence in order that these traits might be displayed more prominently in your life. And so this, this is one way that Christians, unlike really any other religion, can look at situations they're in, the lots that they have been given, no matter how soul-crushing your situation or your current lot might seem, They can look at this, Christians can, and they can look to God the Father, and first of all, acknowledge that as a father, he's good, and all work, and he works all things for the good of those that love him, but also, those Christians can recognize this, they could recognize the situation and say, maybe maybe this situation is perhaps something God is using to grow my faith. Maybe this is some sort of pruning. And I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit, this can be extremely tough to see in the moment whenever you have a bitter providence shining upon you. It's extremely tough to see in the moment. But that's what makes Jesus' words a comfort to us here. The pruning is here so that the fruit may increase. The pruning takes place so the believers are going to grow even stronger in their faith and their fruit of the Spirit. And they're going to go stronger in holiness, and they're going to go stronger in righteousness. So this pruning is actually a gift, as hard as that might seem to be. And then verse 3, moving on. Verse 3, Jesus states again something that he has already told him in his farewell discourse back in chapter 13. He says, those that are clean don't have to be washed again. So... He just throws this in because believers who are saved by faith, through which God washes them of their spiritual filthiness. So these people don't have to be rewashed completely. But also back in chapter 13, Jesus told the apostles during the foot washing episode, when Jesus says this, that they do need to repeatedly wash their feet. So those who have been made clean do not need to bathe again, but they do have to repeatedly wash their feet. So they need, in other words, a daily cleansing from their sins. Or maybe they need something like a pruning, to where they need to grow closer to God through this process. But those who are clean are clean. And then after this, after verse 3, Jesus has a very large concentration of abide statements, or the word abide or abides. Jesus is driving the point home here. Jesus apparently really wanted the apostles to know, and he really, really wants us to know how deeply significant our union with him is. 
So we as branches of the true vine are implored repeatedly by the vine, by Jesus himself, to abide in our Savior. In fact, in verses 4 through 10, Jesus uses the word abide 10 times. So in the span of seven verses, Jesus says this 10 times. And so I said it before and I will say it again and I don't know if if I'll ever truly understand it until I get to glory, but the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ is one of the most mysterious and unfathomable things to me. It truly, honestly is. And I'll be honest, if it was not in the plain words of Scripture, I just don't know that I would believe it. Well, why, why do I say that? It's because I know how sinful my own heart is. I do. And I know how pure and undefiled Jesus is. So my, the question that goes on in my mind is, how in the world do I, being this filthy, this detestable beggar that I am, why do I have any right or any claim to be joined together to the King of Glory? I have no idea. This is why this is so mysterious to me. And if, like I said, if it wasn't in the plain words of Scripture, it would be so hard to believe because I know how filthy I am and I know how glorious Jesus is. But here it is in the plain and clear words of Jesus that we are united to him as believers. And that is a glorious and a joyous doctrine. So our union with Christ is what makes the perseverance of the saints make sense. It does, because if the Trinitarian union can't be broken, hope we all agree with that, the Trinitarian union cannot be broken. And if we're in Christ, our union with the Father cannot be broken either. Hence, we persevere. That's what makes the perseverance of the saints completely legitimate, because we are united to Christ. Also, abiding in Christ ensures that we're producing good fruit. For in Christ is also union with the Holy Spirit. You're united to Christ, you're also united to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what produces the fruits, or produces the good works. And then later on, Jesus states the contrapositive of this. So if you're not in him, you cannot produce anything of value. Obviously, people can do stuff. They can go about living their lives, but they cannot produce anything of eternal value outside of Jesus Christ. But Jesus states that clearly. Everything apart from Jesus Christ, everyone who is apart from him can do nothing. They're useless, as Jesus says. They're destined for the fire. That's terrifying. But for us, for us, there's benefits. There's benefits of the increase of works, increase of fruit. There's benefits of being united to Jesus Christ and persevering and knowing that our prayers would be answered. And that's what Jesus said next. In verse 7, a wonderful benefit of abiding in Christ is whatever we ask will be granted to us. That's a big statement. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I'm going to be careful right here before somebody from TBN or Daystar comes calling and offering me a contract to be on TV. Right? Because... Those name it and claim it folks and those people who say that God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy, they'll use this and they'll say, Jesus says it here, you just have to have enough faith and maybe give me a little money too. That's part of the deal. And those people are going to twist this verse 12 ways to Sunday. They're going to say that Jesus says here that whatever you wish, it's going to be done for you if you have enough faith. Well, 
That's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. Because abiding in Jesus, it means that you have been cleansed from your sins and it means that you have a continual cleansing from it if you abide in him. But what it does not mean, it does not mean that Jesus is your personal genie and Jesus will grant your every wish, your worldly wishes. Because the implications of having your soul abiding in Jesus is that your will is also abiding in Jesus' will. And so your will and your thoughts have been transformed to desire the things that Christ desires. That's why he's promising to answer your prayers here. Because your will is united to his will, and you're going to pray for the things that he desires. That's why Jesus makes this promise about prayer. When you pray in Jesus' name, first of all, you're confessing that your prayers are being spoken from a will that is united to his and that the prayer that you have just uttered is pleasing to him. That's a big, heavy thing, right? When you pray in Jesus' name, you are confessing what you have just prayed is united to Jesus' will and that you're praying something that is pleasing to him. So a blasphemous or an unrighteous prayer is quite dire. It's a violation of the third commandment, first of all, to take the name of the Lord in vain. But a righteous prayer, a prayer that is united to the will of Christ, that desires what Christ desires, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so because the will of the person who prays is united to the will of God the Father and God the Son, and that prayer is also sanctified through the intercession of the Holy Spirit, the prayers work. Whatever we pray will be done for us in that case. So Jesus' words are trustworthy here. They are true here. Whatever we ask will be given to us, provided the other statements that he also says, if we abide in him. And then after this, in verse 8, Jesus moves on to make a teleological statement here, or an in-purpose statement of all this. The in-purpose for all of this abiding that he talks about is indeed the same in-purpose for all of creation and all of history. It's to bring glory to God. That's what it says in verse 8. It glorifies the Father. The logical flow here goes something like this. The axioms being that Jesus is the vine, and those who are believers are branches of the true vine. Then if you're a branch, you're going to bear fruit. And if you bear fruit, you're going to be pruned to bear more fruit. If you bear more fruit, this is the proof that you actually abide in the true vine. And if you abide, as proved by your fruit bearing, your prayers are going to be answered. Also, if you abide and bear fruit, it's going to prove yourself to be one of Jesus' disciples. And the end purpose for all of this is so that God receives the glory. Just like the end purpose for creation, it's the end purpose of all of history and all of God's providence is that he receives the glory. All for the glory of God. God grafts these wild olive shoots like you and me into the true vine. Our wills are then transformed to be united to Jesus' will. Then we produce much fruit, fruit that is then offered back to God the Father, fruit that is well-pleasing to him, and he's glorified as, as the end result of it all. And so this abundance of fruit that Jesus says we will bear 
is pointing back to those Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and Hosea, which envisioned a time in which the people of God are going to blossom and they're going to put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Remember Hosea 14 and Isaiah 27, that's kind of the end of those. Jesus is going to come, he's going to fill his people with fruit, and those people are going to go out and produce more fruit, and they're going to make new converts, and they're going to bring in the whole world to be fruitful. They're going to bring the whole world to be fruitful. And in the end, this kind of harkens back to what the Garden of Eden was like. It harkens back to Eden. So you remember what Eden was like. Remember what Eden looked like. Other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eden was filled with great fruit. In Eden, this was literal fruit. Everything other than the knowledge of good and evil. This was good fruit. These good works, like we have right now, are also good fruit. These are also pleasing to God. In Eden, it was literal fruit that was pleasing to God because he looked at all that he had made and said that it was good. So like our good works, it's pleasing to God. And also like our good works, the fruit in Eden was pleasing to man. Really, whenever you go forth really producing good works and producing good fruit, it's also pleasing to your fellow man. Just like the fruit in Eden was satisfying to the belly, it, was also, it also reminded man of the care that God had placed over him. So just like the fruit that we have in our lives is satisfying to us, it also reminds us of the care that God has placed over us. It's the same. This is all true. So our fruit here is the physical outworking of us loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and also loving our neighbor as ourselves. This is the fruit of the New Testament Christian. And Jesus says this exact thing in the next verse. He says, he answers the question, how? How do we abide in the love of Christ? He says we abide by keeping his commandments. So this verse strikes a fatal blow to the antinomians. The fruit that shows that we are abiding in the love of Christ is that we seek to follow him in trust, prayer, and obedience. This is what produces the fruit of repentance and the fruit of the Spirit. It's keeping Christ's commandments. He says so himself right here. Keeping God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, summed up by Christ as loving God first and foremost and also loving your fellow man. Obedience to Christ's moral law and imitation of Christ, these are the, this is the way to be sure of his love. And this is what John also says over in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, John says in verses 3 through 6, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. So there it is, reiterated by John again in his epistle. If you want to abide in Jesus, you walk in the way that Jesus walked. 
If you want to be sure of Christ's love, you keep his commandments. So after Jesus says this, it makes it clear that abiding in his love means that you keep his commandments and you keep the Father's commandments. Jesus concludes by showing the end purpose for the believer. He shows the end purpose of all the, of all, all the things that he said whenever it's for God's glory. But the end purpose for all this for the believer specifically, Jesus says in verse 11, what does this obedience produce in the heart of the believer and in the soul of the believer? It produces joy. Jesus had great joy in obeying his Father. Jesus had this great joy in obeying his Father in the presence of great opposition, and great opposition even unto death on the cross, and ridicule, and shame. But Jesus still had great joy in obeying the Father. So obedience to Christ not only provides us of assurance, like we just said, obedience to Christ is actually the source of joy that Jesus says here. We often confuse this because we can often think of obedience to God as being some sort of drudgery or something that we don't want to do, but we know we kind of need to. But that's not what Jesus says here. Obedience to God is not drudgery. It's all about joy. Many people see obedience to Christ as a burden because it does require sacrificial self-surrender and it requires you to deny yourself and to obey God. And it requires you to seek, to seek to have your will conform to the will of Christ. So people see obedience to all of this as a burden. But Jesus says that this is not a burden at all. The burden is actually what Pilgrim experienced. The burden is the guilt that hangs on to your back as a result of your continual sinfulness. That is what a burden is. Obedience to Christ should not feel like a burden. Jesus says here that obedience produces joy. A joy that Jesus says is full. Jesus tells us all this, that our joy is in him and in obeying him, and it's a full joy. So that's good news. That's good news that our obedience is not for nothing. It's for joy. It produces joy in us. Jesus has promised us this. And even better, even better news for you, Jesus not only explains the truth here in chapter 15, he even goes further later on and assures that it is accomplished in the life of those who are his. Because just a few words over in John is Jesus' high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. So I'm going to ask you, go home, I'm serious, go home, read it tonight before you go to bed. It's going to take you like three minutes to read it. And I promise if you read that and you're not filled with joy, then you got a problem. Because reading Jesus' high priestly prayer, knowing that he prayed this for you, if you are in him and you abide in him, it's going to fill you with joy. In that high priestly prayer, Jesus specifically prays for the continual abiding of those who are his, who the Father has given him. He prays that they will be sanctified. He prays that they will continue to walk in the truth and that they will be obedient. So Jesus prays this to the Father. And do you think the Father answered the prayers of the Son? Yes, absolutely. So this is such good news for us. It's good news because Jesus has told us that this is going to produce joy. 
But it's even better news because Jesus has specifically prayed for you and me to the Father that their joy may be, that his joy may be in there, in us. That our his joy may be full, that his joy may be abundant in our lives. So, saints, in conclusion, I want you to leave this place tonight examining the fruit in your life. Just like the good soil of the parable of the sower, the seed that goes out of the gospel, it takes root. It takes root and it flourishes into a plant. And that plant becomes grafted into the vine, the true vine, as branches of the true vine that produce good fruit, that has joy in that fruit. So tell you, I tell you, Examine the fruit in your life. If it's there, you can be assured of your union with Christ, the true vine, and all of the benefits that come along with it. So go forth then. Go forth, saints, with the nourishment that the true vine provides to his branches. Go forth into the world displaying the beautiful, desirable fruit that Christ has provided to you and point people back to the vine where you receive your nourishment. Go forth with joy, saints. Go forth with joy that is full the joy of Christ himself, and I pray that God may accomplish this great work on our behalf. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you asking you to make our joy full, asking you to give us abundant joy and to make it manifest in our lives and our desire to follow you, to follow the words of your Son, to be obedient to him, and to be obedient to your commandments. We are thankful that you have provided this vine that Israel could not accomplish, this true vine, and have grafted in these wild olive shoots into that vine so that we may produce fruit. May we produce this fruit in keeping with repentance. May we display the fruits of the Spirit in our love and in our joy and in our peace and our self-control our faithfulness and our kindness, Lord, and our goodness. For we know that you are good, and you have promised us that you will accomplish this for us. We're thankful for the prayers of Jesus that he has uttered on our behalf, how he continually prays for us at your right hand right now. And we're thankful for the Holy Spirit. May he increase in our lives that we may go forth producing good fruit, abiding in the vine. Keep us, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.